Well, good morning, Southwinds. It's so good to see each and every one of you. So glad you're here today. We are in a series of teachings about what God says about our emotions. And if you've been here, you know we have been learning that our emotions should not define us. They should not determine our lives. But we also shouldn't live denying them. And we have been seeing, in fact, that emotions are actually integral to how God created us, that, that we are made in God's image. And the Bible shows us that God displays emotions. So part of what that means is that growing to be more like Jesus always must involve our emotions. And so far, we have looked at the emotions of guilt and anxiety. And today, we're going to be looking at the emotion of anger. And I think uh, you would agree with me, this is an incredibly relevant topic in 2022 because America is a very angry place right now, isn't it? It's like people are outraged about almost everything. A couple of years ago, BBC Magazine had an article entitled, Why Are Americans So Angry? And among other things, it said, Americans are generally known for having a positive outlook on life, but something has changed. The article said, now 69% of Americans say they are either very angry or somewhat angry. We're just a nation of angry people. Here, here's a couple of headlines that talk about this. NPR article says, America is angry, very angry. Washington Post, Americans are addicted to outrage. Time Magazine, America's anger is out of control. So let me ask you, is that true? Are we addicted to outrage? Is our anger out of control? And I think it is. And there are some ways you can kind of see this for yourself. I'll give you just one example. It's kind of an experiment. If you want to try this sometime, just Google the word outrage. I did. I got 1.98 billion hits. <laughs> a lot of talk about outrage. And there's some very interesting articles. In fact, you could just try this as an experiment. I did on Thursday. You put the word outrage together with some groups that, you know, you wouldn't normally associate with outrage, probably mostly pretty chill people, and see what happens. For example, I Googled vegan outrage. <laughs> Almost 27 million hits. They are outraged over a lot of stuff, those vegans. And here's an interesting, uh, fascinating story headline. Betrayed. Vegans revolt against owners of famous LA vegan restaurant after their meat eating outed. Now here's what this is about. These owners of some vegan restaurants, they have actually started uh, eating a little bit of meat on their own table, in their own house, on their own time from their own farm. But vegans are outraged and we will not be placated. You know, they're angry, angry. And it's not just vegans. I also Googled gardeners outrage. Gardeners, and I saw almost 700,000 hits. For example, this article, TV gardener Monty Don, he's evidently a pretty big celebrity in England. Uh, he sparks horticultural outrage. Why, you ask? Well, he, he called begonias ugly. Gardeners everywhere are up in arms. We will not stand for this. We're outraged. And then I tried knitters outrage. 
Got a great story. This is a true story, not making this up. Headline uh, says, U.S. Olympic Committee apologizes to knitters, but knitters will not be appeased. And (laughs) uh, this is about, I'm not making this up, about knitting not becoming an Olympic event. Now, thing is, thing is, like, um, you, you really don't want to upset these knitters because they have the needles. And, you know, someone has said we live in a golden age of outrage. It's like there's no more numbers between one and 10. Everything is immediately all the way up to a level 10 all the time. Anger has been growing in our society across our nation for a number of years now. And it's only gotten worse the last two years. Anger over lockdowns, anger over vaccines, anger over masks, on and on it goes. And you know, when we think about anger, we usually think of what you might call extroverted anger, you know, where someone yells and throws stuff and punches walls, stuff like that. And, and some of you, I, I'm confident of this, you have already found yourself thinking, well, I don't do that, so I'm not really angry, and I don't really need this message, and I'm not sure why I came this morning. Well, this is for you, because if that's what you're thinking, here's what you need to understand. There is also what we might call introverted anger, where people are angry, but they never lose their temper, but they're still scary. Maybe that's you. Maybe you use your silence to frighten people. That's how you say, I'm mad at you, you're silent. You're, you're moody, maybe, but and nobody, nobody ever knows when you're going to be in a mood. And maybe if you're this kind of person, some of you, you pride yourself that you never lose your temper, but you are so angry, and everyone walks around on eggshells when they're around you all the time. See, whether you shove it out or shove it down, anger is still a problem. So here's a question. Why are we all so angry? I want you to listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, writes. This is James chapter four, verses one and two. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot give, but you want, so you quarrel and fight. James says here that the root of anger, so much of it is simple. It's not getting what I want, not getting what I think I deserve, Andy Stanley puts it like this in a book he did that deals with anger. He said, often at the root of anger is this core conviction. I am owed. I am owed. I'm owed something by someone. My boss owes me respect. My spouse owes me love. Someone owes me money. And when I don't get what I feel, I'm owed. I'm angry. Maybe someone at work took credit that was yours, stole your idea, they owe you. Maybe a a parent abandoned or abused or they just neglected you. They, They owe you a different childhood. Maybe a spouse betrayed you and they owed you what they promised when you got married. See, whenever we don't get what we believe we're owed, we get angry and that anger can poison everything. There are so many people who just burn their houses down with anger. They destroy their families with anger. 
Today, we're gonna look at something the Apostle Paul writes about anger. It's in his letter to the Ephesians chapter four. We're gonna be reading verses 26 to 32, and so you're gonna wanna get there in your Bibles. And as you get there, I wanna point something very significant out about Paul. Paul is not writing about anger from a place of privilege or comfort. Paul is writing from prison. Paul is writing these words from a place that he is where he is because of injustice. Many times in Paul's life, he suffered violence. Paul was an innocent victim, and he had every right to get angry and to stay angry at the people who were treating him this way. And yet, listen to what he writes. Starting in verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And this is the word of the Lord and all God's people say, amen. Amen. Now I am operating on the assumption today that Paul's teaching will be helpful for every one of us. And the reality is, this may be you, maybe you're not filled with anger right now, but I do not think there is a person here who can honestly look back on their life and not remember saying something you wish you had never said. Maybe right now, you are remembering relationships that you have lost or that you have damaged permanently because of your anger Maybe some of us in this room, we've actually lost jobs or actually even gone to jail because we could not control our anger. And maybe you're not angry right now, but you will be one day. You will face anger sometime. There are a lot of helpful suggestions, techniques for managing anger, And we're going to get to a few of those, but our focus today is not there. Our our focus today is is where the Bible focuses. We're going to focus most of our attention on what anger reveals about the state of our hearts. And you see, the Bible, before it it teaches us about managing our emotions, it, it helps us to learn to read our emotions so that we can understand what our emotions are telling us about our hearts, what, what anger in this case reveal about what's going on underneath in our hearts. Now in these verses, Paul shows us a number of important truths and I wanna kind of summarize what we're gonna talk about today under three headings. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, you can put this down in the app. First of all, we need to get clarity on anger. And I bring this up because the reality is many of us struggle with anger because we misunderstand it. In fact, it may have confused some of you to hear Paul's first words in verse 26 when he says, be angry. Be angry and do not sin. And in Greek, 
This is a command. You see it in English. He, he commands us to be angry. In other words, Paul is telling us there are times you must be angry. Some of us, we were raised actually to think that any feelings of anger, well, they're wrong. But I want to tell you today, this is not a Christian idea. This is not what the Bible teaches. Actually, it's Buddhism that teaches that the annihilation of emotion is a virtue. Christians don't teach that. The Bible never tells us that. Rather, in this case, the Bible teaches us that anger is a necessary part of love. Maybe you never thought about that. Anger is a necessary part of love. Anger is a destructive energy that's released in defense of something you love. Just think about it. Whenever someone you love is dying of cancer, you hate and you are angry at the cancer that is destroying them. And so what do we do? We release a destructive energy called chemotherapy to try to rid the person you love of the cancer that you hate. If I love my kids, I hate And I'm angry at anything that would hurt them, whether it is a physical danger or a spiritual or a moral danger. If I love the glory of God, I am angry at anything that would diminish or that would attack God's glory. And just think about this. The Bible teaches us that God created people in his image. And that means whenever anyone or anything attacks someone created in the image of God, it should make us angry. You see, we see this truth, this reality in Jesus. He was a person who got angry, sometimes even violently so. We find the most familiar example of this in Matthew chapter 21 where where Jesus was angry at the religious leaders. You remember the the money changers? They had basically taken over so much of the temple so they could make a lot of money and in doing so what they had done is they kicked out the most vulnerable people. They had used their space where they came to worship so that they could make a lot of money and Jesus came and Jesus made a whip and Jesus drove them out. I want you to notice something. Jesus did not regret what he did later. Jesus did not, after this, go back to his disciples and say, you know, guys, I'm sorry. I I, kind of let my emotions get the best of me back there. I I probably should have used my words instead of those whips. No. Jesus went to the cross sinless. So this wasn't a sin In fact, that that would lead me to say something that I think some of us especially need to understand, and it's this. If you never get angry, you're not very much like Jesus. The church father, John Chrysostom, says this. It is true that he that is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is cause also sins, and perhaps to an even greater degree. And here's the thing. Sexual abuse should make us angry. Abuse of any kind should make us angry. Racism should make us angry because it denies God's image in a person he created. Violence and hate like we saw just yesterday in our nation should make us angry. What is going on in Ukraine should make us angry. We should be angry 
Whenever we see someone's sin destroying their lives and destroying the lives of people around them because all of those things are attacks on the image of God and therefore they're attacks on the glory of God. In fact, in the face of evil, if you're not angry, you're not loving. And Jesus, we can say, he, he, got, he got angry precisely because he loved so very much. So Paul says, be angry. But he says also, do not sin. Because there is a kind of anger that is sinful. Sinful anger comes when we love the wrong things. Or maybe we, we love the right things out of proportion. And if, if anger is a destructive energy re- released in defense of, of something you love, then if our loves are out of order, if our loves are out of proportion, then our anger is gonna be out of order, disordered, out of proportion, inordinate as well. Augustine said the root of our sinfulness is disordered loves. And here's the truth. We can love the wrong things or we can love the right things out of proportion. And it's always the case. If what we love is messed up, then our anger will be messed up too. See, it's, it's okay if, it, it, to value your name and your reputation, but if you love those things too much, then you will get inordinately angry whenever your ego is insulted. If you love control, if you love control, and let me just pause here for a minute because there are a number of us in this room, we love control. We really do. And some of us probably need to recognize, maybe in this very moment right now, that the reason we're so often angry is we love control too much, too much. If you love control too much, if you love your comfort too much, if you love convenience in your life too much, then whenever those things are threatened, you will get angry. You see, whenever something makes you mad, you should always be asking yourself this question. It is, what is this? this, What is my anger defending? What is my anger defending? Or in other words, what do I here think that I am owed? What do I think I am owed? And we can very many times miss this. Parents sometimes miss this in their anger at their children's disobedience. Have you ever gotten angry at your kids? And if you were honest with yourself, you would be able to admit to yourself the reason you're angry right now is your kids embarrassed you or your kids inconvenienced you. See, we get angry because of our, something that our anger is defending. And the kind of anger that parents should have with their children should be focused primarily on spiritual or moral issues that their child's disobedience might reflect. Let me ask this question. Why are you angry at your spouse? Whether or not it's the anger that the Bible commands uh, depends on whether or not that anger is about you or it is primarily about God and his righteousness and his glory. Think about this one. When you get mad at work because you didn't receive recognition, I mean, it was your idea, you did the work, you should get the credit, and when you get mad about that, is your anger being driven by your pride? Here's a question. If someone else at work doesn't receive credit, because that happens, you've seen that, right, haven't you? If someone else doesn't get credit, do you get just as angry? Probably not. 
Probably not. Here's what I think we need to recognize. Most of the time, our anger is not what Paul is commanding here. And the reason is all too often, we are loving the wrong things or we are loving the right things in the wrong ways. And because our loves are disordered, our anger is disordered or unrighteous. And the way Paul would tell us that we need to deal with unrighteous or disordered anger is to address the disordered loves, to get to the heart of the matter because it is the loves in the core of our beings that's driving what it is we're angry about. So we need to get clarity on anger. Second, you can write this down, we need to trust God with our anger. Trust God with our anger. Now, you may, have, you may have noticed that Paul's whole discussion of anger, it just comes as this series of commands, commands. But the problem is that some of these commands, they like seem impossible. For example, Paul commands this, verses 31 and 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And you know, when someone who's really angry hears that, it seems like an impossible command because how do you just turn off an emotion? How do you just stop being bitter and angry and start being kind and forgiving? Andy Stanley writes in his book where he deals with anger. He says, whenever I talk about anger and forgiveness, I have learned that there are almost always three kinds of people who hear me who will be struggling with what it is I have to say. He says the first group believes that they ought to forgive, but they cannot muster the courage to do it. He said the second group thinks they'd be letting the offender off the hook and they don't wanna do that. He said the third group, well, they, they claim to have gone through the motions of forgiveness and sometimes it feels like they have, but the memories keep coming back and they end up wondering if they've truly forgiven at all. So how do we develop the ability to do these things. And I think this is where it helps us to consider that Paul's words that we have read are, are set within a context. They're part of a, a larger section of scripture. And if you just go back a couple of verses, back to chapter four, verse 24, Paul tells us that we need to put on the new man we need to, to put on, he says, the identity that we have. We need to live in the new reality that Christ has created for us. See, that's the framework for what he's telling us in our verses. And, and Paul, I think, hints at a couple elements of this new reality that enable us, empower us to, to deal with our unrighteous anger. The first one is at the very end of verse 32. He says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I want you to write this down. It's so very important. We can deal with anger when we remember that we are first sinners and only secondly sinned against. We, we live first and foremost in our minds that we are the sinners and only after that do we start to contemplate the reality that we have been sinned against. I can put this in another way. In other words, I receive power to deal with my anger as I remember God's grace to me. Now this doesn't change the injustice. It doesn't mean that what that person did to you wasn't wrong. 
But I guarantee you, when you live in that reality, it changes your perspective of that person in the moment of that injustice, that wrong. By the way, if you begin to practice this, I wanna tell you ahead of time, you should never use this against someone. Here's what I mean. This is the kind of thing that could happen like in a marriage, maybe, I don't know. Never tell someone, you know what? Pastor Mike said that you shouldn't be angry at me because your sin against God is way worse than anything I've done to you. So stop your whining. That's not what we're telling, I'm telling you here. Only use this reality on yourself. I have power to uh, deal with my anger when I remember that I am fundamentally someone in deep need of God's grace, fundamentally someone who has been deeply, profoundly forgiven in spite of my sin. That's where I start. I don't deserve God's forgiveness. And so I can approach any situation with this profound recognition of how great the the grace of God to me is, of how much our good God has forgiven me. And that changes things. It really does. And I can trust God with my anger. Paul gives a second element uh, of this new reality at the end of verse 26, that, that phrase where he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I I think among other things, what this means is that we trust God to be the judge over our anger. We trust God. Not letting the sun go down on your anger means I, I don't carry with me to bed the burden of righting all the wrongs. God has promised to do that, and so I can lay my head down on my pillow at night and I can go to sleep. See, Paul only talks about this briefly here in Ephesians 4, but there's another place in his writings where he kind of unpacks um, this idea of anger and how we should respond. It's actually in Romans chapter 12. There's a passage that begins in verse 17. I'm gonna read some words to you that he writes there. Here's where he starts. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. If it is possible, he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There are so many applications of this, but I want you to notice one thing here. Paul is indicating one thing, I think, here that he's not saying that you have to keep yourself or your kids in an abusive situation. He is saying, if possible, as far as it depends on you, which means that there will be times when it's not possible, even after you've done everything possible that you can, and the only thing left to do is for you to remove yourself from that situation. And if you think that's you, and I would encourage you to seek counsel, I would encourage you to reach out for help to let us help you. Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. In verse 19, he says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And maybe some of you right now are saying, I I really am interested in that uh, heaping burning coals thing. I'd like to do that. 
This is actually a Jewish metaphor. You can look up the original verse, Proverbs 25, 21. And Paul is telling us here, I think, that heaping burning coals on someone's head will do one of two things to them. It will either wake them up to the injustice of what they are doing to you. I mean, something really hot is gonna catch your attention, right? Or secondly, it will increase God's judgment on them in the day that he brings vengeance. In other words... As they keep treating you badly, even after you keep responding to them with kindness, God is always taking notes. He's watching. And at the end, God is going to say to them, after all the kindness they showed to you, this was how you treated them. And God's judgment will then be worse on them. Your your kindness will literally heap hot coals on their heads. But the point here really is for you to be able to live free of the burden of having to make everything that's wrong right because God, he promises to carry that burden you see, when, when I am trusting God with my anger, I can know that for that person who has wronged me, one of two things will be true. Either this person's sins against me are going to be covered by Jesus' death on the cross where my sins were covered, or, or this person will pay for those sins eternally in hell. And either way, Either way, I do not have to carry the bitterness that comes from feeling like they're just going to get away with it and it will never be made right. And here's the thing, listen to me, because I believe that it enables me, it empowers me to show them grace. And what this means in the end, whatever happens, whatever happens, we we can make like Elsa and let it go. Just let it go. And I know some of you right now, you're getting a little angry because I brought Elsa up and you don't really want to think about that anymore. And I just want to tell you, let it go. Let let it go. By the way, one of the charges that the world likes to make about Christians is that because we believe in a, a God who judges, it makes us judgmental. Miroslav Volf is a theologian that... Yale, he's also a survivor of genocide in Croatia. And he says this about that charge. He says, only spoiled Westerners who have never really experienced any injustice themselves could ever say that. He says, actually, it's the opposite. He says, when you have lived through genocide, when you have watched your family beaten and raped and murdered, oppressed, he said, the only thing that could keep me from going insane with rage and bitterness, consumed with a desire for vengeance, is the knowledge that there is a just God who holds vengeance in his hands and who will settle all scores one day. See, when you take or try to take on the role of judge yourself, it, it always corrupts you. That's why Paul says, that letting the sun go down on your anger opens the door. It gives a foothold to the devil. It gives him opportunity. You see, it corrupts us. It, it, it's sort of like um, putting that ring on your finger in the Lord of the Rings. It changes you. And for some of you, it really is true. You're, you're precious. 
is your anger. You nurse it and you, you, you take care of it. You, you, you keep it hot. You, you want it to be there. There's a sense in which you love that anger. It's become who you are and it's turned you into a dark and a vengeful person. Will you hear me today? You and I were never designed, never designed to be the judge over others' sin. God didn't make us for that. A couple reasons I think we can think of for that. The first is the biggest. We have our own sin to deal with. Anybody wanna say amen right now? We have our own sin to deal with. And second, because our loves are always to some degree out of order, that means we almost never get judgment right. It's almost always that our judgment gets mixed up with our own selfishness, right? Our anger is never, hardly ever pure. And so trying to play judge when we've been wronged, it only is gonna end up corrupting, as Paul says, And that is the reason why we should always turn our anger over to God as the sun goes down and we should trust God, the good God of justice, to do the judging and to bring judgment when he so deems best. So Paul's answer to unrighteous anger is to put on the new man, which means we are to live in the reality of what it means to be saved people, what it means to be people whom the gospel has transformed. We are to grapple with the implications of the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ, and we, we just need, as we do that, to never forget God's forgiveness of us. And as we remember that forgiveness, we can be enabled to trust God to be the judge over our anger. Now, with with all of this in mind, what does loving anger look like? And I think Paul, he gives us some glimpses into this. And I want to describe it like this. This is the third thing I want you to write down. Uh, We need to learn to be angry like Jesus. We need to learn to be angry like Jesus. There's several insights I think we can see in these verses. The first one is this. Loving anger is redemptive, not vindictive. Loving anger is directed toward the problem, not the person. Here's how, how Paul says it. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So when you're lovingly angry, when you're angry like Jesus, your goal is building the other person up. Your goal is to remove the evil from that person, but simultaneously to save the person, to give grace to the person, just like Jesus did for you. And when you are thinking like that and living like that, it enables you to confront someone about their wrong, but without malice, without desire to make them pay for what they did, without someone stopped me after the first service and said, kind of a moment of confession, I always have to have the last word. Loving anger doesn't always have to have the last word. And as your pastor, I, I give some of you permission to elbow the person next to you who needs to really hear that today. See, are we loving like Jesus? It's gonna be redemptive, not vindictive. 
when you're loving like Jesus and you're trying to be redemptive, the confrontation, and you should talk to someone about something that's wrong, but that confrontation should not be like a venting of frustration. It should not be like an execution of justice. Instead, it should be like an invitation to fellowship and a restored relationship. Loving anger is always focused on eliminating the sin while simultaneously drawing close to that person. Second, if we're gonna be angry like Jesus, we need to know that loving anger is short-lived. This comes from verse 26. This is a, the sun uh, does not go down on your anger. And here's the thing, whether or not the sun goes down on your anger is always a test. It's a test of, of whether your anger is unrighteous and self-centered or whether your anger is righteous and loving. And loving anger is always short-lived. You confront the person for the wrong, and then you give it to God. You let God deal with it, and because you give it to God, you don't try to carry that burden anymore. You can go to sleep tonight, lay your head down on your pillow tonight, and you can rest because the sun is not going down on your anger because you're not angry anymore. You have given that to God. You're trusting God with that anger. You're learning to be angry like Jesus. Selfish anger, on the other hand, it just lasts. It doesn't go away. You chew on it. You stew on it. You obsess over the hurt, over the injustice. Sometimes people think that Paul's words here in verse 26 mean something like, never go to bed until you resolve every conflict. Has anyone else discovered that the result of that, it just means no one ever goes to bed? You know, it, it, it's not possible many times to do that. Sometimes, you know, you can talk to someone that you're angry with about what you're angry over and it just won't get to resolution. But I want you to see, Paul isn't, isn't talking about resolving all of your issues every day before you go to bed, though that is an excellent idea and I would encourage you to strive towards something like that. He's not talking about that as much as he's talking about the attitude that we should have whenever we are in conflict and we disagree. And that attitude is this. I, I don't have to carry the burden of settling every score, of always getting that other person to see things my way, which of course is the right way. I give that to God. I can confront wrong when there is wrong, but I do that in humility and I just give it to God and I just go to bed. You know, truth is, some of the anger that some of us have is very, very complicated. It, it has deep roots down into our childhood. It involves family and all kinds of trauma, maybe, all those factors in relationship. But here's the point. How long your anger lasts is telling you something about the nature of your anger, and we should seek for it to be short-lived. And we know that because of Jesus. Jesus' anger in the Gospels, always short-lived. If you go back to Matthew chapter 21, I, I, I saw something this week I'd never seen before. If you go back to Matthew 21, right after that story where he drives the money changers out of the temple with whips, the end of that story happens in verse 13. And in verse 14, this is the very next thing we read. It says, the blind and the lame, they came to him and he healed them. See, right after Jesus displayed anger, vulnerable people flocked to him. I'm gonna just ask you a question. After you are angry, do a lot of people wanna hang around you? Those people didn't say, oh, we better stay away from Jesus. He is in a mood. 
You know, he cursed five fig trees on the way to the temple the day after. He did all that whip stuff and the money changer stuff and left the temple. He went through the food cart on his way out and he changed the wine back into water. He is mad today. You better stay away from him. Jesus' anger was focused. His anger was short-lived. And I just want to ask you, does that happen when you are angry? Third, loving anger is controlled. And we go back to verse 31 where Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And what he's talking about here is just avoiding that state that we can get into where you just feel consumed by anger. Whether that comes out aggressively and loudly through angry words or actions or whether that comes out passively through silence and slander and gossip, that anger needs to be controlled. When, loving, when anger is loving, one of the things we see about it is that it develops slowly. You know, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about anger. I actually thought maybe I would do this message from Proverbs, but if you look at the different verses in Proverbs about anger, you could probably sum it up this way. Proverbs doesn't say no anger. Proverbs says slow anger. Slow anger. Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person keeps himself under control. So I don't know, maybe if a, a friend of yours calls and says, I just need to vent, you could say to him biblically, proceed, fool. <laughs> that might not be a great idea. I don't know. But Proverbs shows us that getting angry rarely leads to positive results. Proverbs 29:22 says, an angry person stirs up conflict and a hot-tempered person commits what's next? Many sins, many sins. If you go back to the letter of James, which, by the way, if you didn't know this, is like the Old Testament equivalent of Proverbs. Uh, the letter of James is a kind of wisdom literature. James says this, chapter one, verses 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I wanna close very briefly with a few practical steps that we can take in our lives to help us learn to be angry like Jesus. You can, you can discuss these maybe in your life group. These are not original with me, but I think they're kind of a noteworthy to help you focus in some things that you can begin to apply. And so you wanna write these down. The first thing is practice the pause. Practice the pause. See, a key part of learning to be angry like Jesus is to do the things we've just read about in Proverbs so we don't give full vent to our anger. We're slow to be angry. And, and we kind of know this. This is an intuitive sort of thing. We've all sort of heard this, right? Um, how many of you had a mom tell you, you know, before you say something when you're mad, you should count to what? You count to 10, right? It's generally helpful advice. So when you sense anger coming on, just stop, pause. Take a couple of deep breaths maybe before you respond. I came across another very helpful concept that fits under this heading this week. It's uh, from a researcher at the University of Washington, Dr. John Gottman. 
And it goes like this. He has a phrase. He's done research on anger. And the phrase goes like this. Stop when flooded. Stop when flooded. And he uses this phrase to describe the physical state that we get in to when we're, we're angry. See, physiologically, science has shown us this. We, we get flooded with, with hormones that, that actually kind of override the parts of our brain associated with analytical thinking. Your brain is just buzzing with emotions. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've been in that place and, and it's just like that. You're just kind of buzzing. And when you're flooded with these either like fight or flight hormones, you literally um, cannot be rational. The analytical part of your brain shuts down. So stop when flooded. Do not text when flooded. Do not make a speech to the kids when flooded. Do not confront your spouse when flooded. Do not think it's a good idea to share with your boss the deepest thoughts that you have in your heart right now when flooded. You will regret it. Stop. Stop when flooded. Instead, practice the pause. Take time until those, those hormones flush out. And sometimes, some of you, you don't need to count to 10. It's more like 100,000 or something. Just, just take the time. Make sure, make sure that you're not acting when flooded. Second, close the window. Close the window. Any of you ever leave like a burner on? You're cooking something for a meal. You leave a burner on and, and, and it catches on fire, right? So you've got this fire on top of the stove, and what do you do? Well, if you do the right thing, you, you know you should put a, a lid on it, right? Like, don't throw water on this fire in this dish that's got oil in it. That would be a really bad idea. You put a lid on it. You cut off the oxygen, and, and here's why I'm, I'm emphasizing this. We live in a culture where people regularly tell us, you need to release that anger. Let it fly. Get it off your chest. Now, the Bible never tells that, and let's just, like, can we talk right now? Has that ever really worked? Has that ever really worked for anyone? No, it doesn't work. It's not a good thing. And so we need to find constructive ways to deal with our anger. We need to do things that close the window, that cut off the oxygen of our anger. And for some of us, it may be just going on a walk. Going on a walk. Maybe you need to listen to some peaceful music. Maybe you need to read a book. Maybe you need to spend some time in prayer. But whatever it is, you, you step away and you cut off the oxygen of your anger. You give yourself time to process before you do anything. And then after all of this, when you're ready, here's what I want you to see, so important. Stop telling lies. Now I get this from a verse that's before the passage we read, and I think it's not an accident that Paul puts all these things together there. They seem to be touching on different subjects, but listen to what verse 25 says. Uh, Ephesians 4.25, Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. In other words, be honest about your anger. Tell the truth. See, when things are not right, they do need to be talked about. 
And you need the courage to deal with him. And if you don't do that, you're gonna live with anger. And, and maybe this problem is gonna take some professional help. Maybe if it's an abusive relationship that's involved, it's gonna take some legal help. But the truth needs to be told. The truth needs to come out and be dealt with. You just can't keep stuffing anger. See, for some of us, we haven't learned to be angry like Jesus. We haven't learned how to, to deal with our anger appropriately. We have, some of us, we've lived in denial. We've bought the lie that all anger is wrong, and so we never admit to ourselves that we're angry, but we're so angry. And the devil has gotten a foothold. The enemy has dug his way into our lives, and I am telling you, Southwinds, please listen. It is time to forgive. It is time to let it go. It is time to set your anger aside. Will you give your anger to the just judge of the universe, to the good God who knows best how to handle your anger? Will you trust him with it? And will you keep giving it to him as long as and as many times as you need to. I was thinking this week that some of us are gonna hear God's word, what it teaches us today, and we're gonna wanna do it, and you're saying amen in your heart right now. And you're gonna go home, and you're gonna apply it one time, or maybe a few times. But some of us, when the anger keeps coming back, we're gonna give up and we're gonna give in. And I just wanna say to you, don't do that. We live in a broken world, friends, and one of the things that means is that life will make you angry and there are things that are gonna happen to you and they will not stop completely, listen to me, until we go home to live with Jesus forever. It's always going to be happening. It's always going to be taking place. The anger is going to be raised up in our lives by this or that, this person or that person. So I'm telling you, you have to keep coming to Jesus. You have to keep trusting him with your anger. You have to just keep remembering that you were first a sinner and then only sinned against. So you need to show grace. You have to just keep trusting God with your anger and you have to just keep learning from Jesus how to be angry. So I wanna tell you today, please, don't stop. Don't give up. And don't give in. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We, we can take our anger to God and we can find grace and peace. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. All God's people say, amen. amen. Would you bow your heads as we pray? As we bow our hearts and our minds before God, I want to um, ask you some questions, and I hope you'll listen in a spirit of prayer. If you are struggling right now, you believe maybe everything you've heard me say, but you're just struggling right now to let go of that anger you have, I want to just ask you, 
And please hear this question. I want to ask you, how long will you allow people you don't even like, maybe people who are no longer in your life, maybe even people who aren't even alive anymore, how long will you allow them to control your life? Does anybody need to hear these words today? Stop living in the past and stop nursing your pain and stop telling the sad stories and start taking your anger to God and giving it to him. Start trusting God with your anger. Friends, he's strong enough to carry your anger and he's wise enough to bring precisely the right kind of justice and he loves you and he forgives you and he longs for you to live in his grace and his peace. Father God, you see our hearts, you know our wounds, our, our pain, you, you know the injustices we have suffered. But Lord, you also see our excuses and you know where we like to place the blame. So God, will you please give us today, right now, the strength and the courage to take your word and to live it out in our lives. Lord, would you empower us to forgive and then to just walk free, to live in grace and live in peace, receiving grace from you, giving grace to others. Lord, we know this is possible. We believe this is possible. And this is what we want. We want to be like Jesus. And so, Father, now, as your people, in your presence together. We pray each of these things and we pray these things, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus. Jesus, our savior, Jesus, our Lord. We pray these things in his good name. And all God's people together say, amen.